I'm really excited about what we're going to do today. And I'm not excited for the reasons that many pastors might be. Things like, I've got great stories or great humor. There's no danger of that in my sermon. I'm thankful because this is favorite part of Scripture for me. I use this passage of Ephesians 2 so often I can't even number it how often I've gone here. It's so foundational. It's so transformative. My walk as a Christian, my understanding of theology as a Christian, radically and permanently changed when I understood what I'm going to share with you out of the Word today. So I'm excited about it. I'm excited about theology. I'm probably the only one on the planet who gets that excited about theology. But I'm going to try to make that infectious for you this morning, okay? So open your Bibles to chapter 2 of Ephesians. Uh, we'll pray here as I do always in a moment. Uh, last week we got into Ephesians 2 just barely. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And I intentionally dragged my feet a little bit at the outset of this chapter because I knew that what followed was a little section I didn't want to break up and I've been holding back so we could do it all today. So we'll pick up in verse 3. Let's go to prayer. Open your Bibles with me as we do that. And hope you'll get excited for what God is going to teach you today about, about yourself, about who we are in Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your blessings in our lives. Our weekend was a weekend, I pray, filled with reflections on uh, all the things you've given us, all the blessings we've received. If not, Father, then perhaps now you would encourage in our hearts an attitude of thankfulness and of appreciation so that longings and desires for what we don't have won't overshadow the grace you've given us in so many other places already. And for your word this morning, Father, thank you for the the magnificence of what you offered in Paul for us in your word, what, what you revealed to him so that he may reveal it to us in his writing. Thank you, Father, for the knowledge that it offers, for the correction that it might provide. And, Father, most of all, thank you for how it sets our feet into something solid that can't be shaken, a recognition of who we are in Christ and of what will come because of that and how it came to pass so that no one and nothing can come into our life and cause us to doubt what you have done. That more than anything, Father, I'm thankful for this morning. And I pray you would let me have your wisdom just long enough that I can speak these things according to your will and do so, Father, in a way that brings hearts and minds in alignment with your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So now we're moving through some of the most important doctrine in all of the New Testament. And when we started this journey in the book of Ephesians, which was now, what, a couple months ago, I guess, I warned you at the time, we would come into some challenging things as we go into this study. After all, you cannot wade into topics like predestination or election without feeling challenged. That's the nature of these things. And I think the reason these things can be so challenging to us at times is because what the Bible teaches us about spiritual matters is often very different than what we experienced personally in our walk with Christ. For example, each of us who are believers would remember at some point in our past that time where we chose to place our faith in Jesus Christ. We did it at a certain moment in our past. But we learned, if you remember from chapter 1, that the Father chose us for salvation before the world began. And then perhaps we remember before we were Christians doing good works of one kind or another because we thought God would be pleased with our efforts. But then we learned at the beginning of chapter 2 last week that our good works were merely the selfish products of a sinful heart and therefore they could not please the Lord. 
Those things surprise you, don't they? They're not what your experience told you. That's why you have to study Scripture. That's why we have it, at least in part. It's so that through the Word of God, spiritual truths can be revealed to us that we could never have understood merely through personal experience. And that's the benefit of what we're doing in the study of Ephesians here. We are learning things that you simply cannot know apart from the revelation of God in His Word. Last week we discovered another one of these surprising, world-shaking truths. We learned last week that prior to our coming to faith, Paul said we were dead, that was his word, dead in our trespasses and sins. We learned last week that we were dead in the sense that we were under judgment for our transgressions. We were like the walking dead. We were as good as dead. But more than that, Paul said we were incapable of doing anything spiritually good in order to rectify our own situation. So in a very literal sense, we were like a corpse. We were absent spiritual life. And we were so incapacitated by that condition that we could do nothing to correct the problem. Paul's been examining how you and I share this spiritual journey with Christ, following in his footsteps, in other words. That in the case of Christ, for example, his journey started with his death on the cross. And in our case, Paul said that we also start our spiritual journey in likeness with him in a death. We're dead. Everyone enters the world, he said, in this state, according to the course of the world. And then Paul added in verse 3 last week that our dead nature also dictates our behavior. And I didn't emphasize this side of verse 3 very much last week. So let's pick up there, reading verse 3 again, and then we're going to move forward from there. Verse 3, Paul says, Among them, and he's speaking, as you know, about the unbelieving world. Among them, we too, all formally, lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So, Paul said that we too, now you notice he's speaking of them and we. We are believers in this verse. We are the believer. And them are the unbelieving of the world. The rest, as he calls them. Okay, so he says, we, the believers, were once formally like them in the world. You were once an unbeliever. That's a simple principle that you can't deny. And when you were once an unbeliever, you lived as unbelievers do. And that's important to remember. It's important to remember how your journey began as a Christian. You never want to go around thinking, it's always been the way it is right now for you, that you never had any need for God's grace, that, as it were, someone might suggest they were born a Christian. Our ministry had some email this week, and one of the emails I remember seeing came from somebody in another part of the world asking a Bible question, but they started their question by saying, I was born a Christian. When you see language like that, you immediately start to wonder what they mean by that. Are they even a Christian now? Do they think being a Christian is something you can be born into? Even when someone sprinkles water on a baby's forehead and calls it a baptism, that child is not magically turned into a Christian. To be born again spiritually, according to the Bible, requires the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of that person to give that person a new living spirit, to take them from dead to alive spiritually. As God himself says, speaking of how the new covenant comes to someone, he said this even in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 11, 19 and 20, the Lord said, speaking of Israel, he says, I will give them one heart, and notice this, and put a new spirit within them, and I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. 
He's speaking of Israel, but the process of salvation for any human being is no different. The moment of salvation comes to an individual as a result of a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And until that moment came, we were, the Bible says, dead, just as the rest of the world was dead. And then Paul says in verse 3 that the result of your dead condition prior to coming to faith was that you acted in accordance with your nature. If I could list maybe ten fundamental theological principles that every Christian has to understand if they're to really appreciate what the Bible teaches about who we are and who Christ is, one of those ten would be this concept right here. What it means to act in keeping with nature. A dead nature is how we all arrived into this world at birth. Dead spiritually. We inherited it. That's why Paul says we are children of wrath. He means that Adam brought God's wrath upon humanity by his own choice to sin. And that condition, that sinful state, has now been passed down to every generation of humanity that have come from Adam. That's why all of us enter the world in that condition. And then the Bible says that that condition, I'm going to call it your nature, your fallen sinful nature, controls your actions and your thoughts. You could think of a spiritual nature a little bit like a computer software program. Speaking as an engineering guy, this is how I tend to think of things. So I'm thinking this is your body, your humanity, your existence is directed by some programming, let's call it. The Bible would call it your nature. And that nature was hard-coded into you like software in a computer at your birth. And as a result, it determines how you think and how you live. At the very moment that Adam disobeyed the word of God in the garden, when he ate the fruit he wasn't supposed to eat, and he sinned, his nature changed. What we're saying is, at the fall of Adam, his nature was reprogrammed from the way God initially gave it to him into something that was different, into something that had an instinct of rebellion and sin, into something the Bible calls dead. His new source code, to continue the analogy, was written by no less than the devil himself. By Satan's influence, the human race, the Bible says, fell into a state of sin, becoming like him spiritually. And that's why scripture says that unbelievers, all of humanity, at the beginning of their life anyway, all of humanity are children of the devil because they are of their father who produced fallen humanity. You understand what we're saying, right? We're not saying that you are the spawn of Satan, to use the Hollywood term. It's not some physical descendant we're talking about. We're saying in the nature of, in the pattern of, we are like him. That's where we start. From that point onward, everyone who descended from Adam, which is every human being that's ever lived, save Christ, everyone who's descended from Adam acts in keeping with this new nature that Adam produced by his sin. The programming directs the behavior. Which is why Paul says in verse 3 that when we were yet not a believer, when we were still like the rest of the world, we obeyed the lusts of our flesh. Before we knew Christ, we indulged, he says, the desires of what our flesh wanted to do. We allowed our fleshly desires to dictate our thinking and our actions. That's the programming we're talking about. We submitted to the base impulses of our nature. We did it routinely and we did it without any forethought. We fell to the temptations of the enemy. We didn't even know it was happening. We weren't conscious of any of this. That's the, that's the worst of it. We're not even awake to the reality of who we are. So what we do doesn't feel wrong. It just feels natural. For it is. 
Now, if you think back to your life prior to Christ, and this is going to be a, a particularly hard to do if you came to Christ when you were really young, but if you came to Christ like I did in my adulthood, I came to Christ in my late 20s, so I have a decent memory of what life was like before. I would suggest to you, though, that if you can remember what your life was like before Christ, you probably did not perceive yourself to be a bad person in that time. Most of us. Some of us have horror stories of who we were. But most of us probably were decent human beings. At least that's how we saw ourselves. We certainly didn't see ourselves as someone controlled by the devil, right? No one ever had that impression of themselves. And frankly, that's not surprising because our human experience cannot prepare us to understand spiritual realities. Simply put, spiritually dead people can't know spiritual truths. That's a fundamental principle of Scripture. So as an unbeliever, you and I had absolutely no idea how far we were from God, nor did we have any true interest in finding Him. Even if you were religious, pursuit of religion is not the same thing as pursuing God. Not in a true sense. And the Bible says the unbeliever's nature, this thing we keep talking about, this programming that you're born with, it blinds you to your own condition. I tried to think of an analogy to help explain what the Bible is teaching on this point. And I landed on this one. Please don't judge it. I think it's like trying to explain to a fish what it would mean to be wet. Think about it. The fish is completely wet all the time. So you might assume that it has a very good understanding of its own condition, right? Who better to know they're wet than a fish? But because it's never not been wet, that is to say it's never been dry, then it has no way to appreciate what being wet means. It's not even aware of the conversation. It's not even open to the idea. And similarly, friends, an unbeliever cannot understand what it means to be spiritually dead, or, for that matter, to be needing to be born again. Those words mean nothing to the person, because that insight itself requires spiritual life. Do you see the conundrum? Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 2.14. And he's using the word natural here again in the same way that I am. That is an unbeliever's nature from birth. He says, but a natural man, natural woman, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For those things are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. You hear what Paul's saying? Paul's saying only those who are spiritually alive can understand spiritual truth. True things about God. Yet as long as a person is spiritually dead, which is how all human beings are from birth, well then they can't accept spiritual truths, Paul says. So here we find a catch-22, do we not? Now that's a phrase taken from the title of a famous book written in the 60s, which the vast majority of you all probably never read it. But a catch-22 is any time that the solution and the problem are contradictory or they interfere with one another so that you can't get there from here, as the saying goes. So here's the catch-22 we seem to have stumbled upon in Scripture. The gospel message is spiritual truth. And it is the only way someone can be born again spiritually, to become alive spiritually. But unbelievers who need that message are dead spiritually and therefore they cannot receive that spiritual truth. Only those who are already spiritually alive can understand spiritual truth. So the question then is, how can a spiritually dead person who needs the gospel receive the gospel so as to be saved if you have to be spiritually alive first in order to receive it? Do you see the conundrum? Do you see the catch-22? Now you see why, in what we studied last week, that Isaiah said 
that even our, quote, good works as unbelievers are just filthy garments to God. An unbeliever's very nature prevents them from knowing and obeying spiritual truth. Even worse, it leaves them incapable of finding their way out of their own dilemma. So as the Bible says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. You have no hope to solve your own problem if your goal is to find God on your own because you're literally blind and dead. Now Paul says that was our former life. Before we had faith in Jesus. So that begs a huge question, doesn't it? How exactly did we move from death to life, given this barrier? How did I ever make the transition? Because clearly we did. I mean, look around the room. We have believers in the room. We just defined what seems to be an impossibility to reach the place that we have clearly reached. Now, how do I solve that dilemma? Well, I don't have to. The Bible does for us. Paul says what the answer is. And friends, we begin with some things we know. We know that all humanity enters the world dead in trespasses and sins. So there has to be some way in which this barrier we just discussed is being overcome on our behalf. How did we gain the ability to receive spiritual truth so as to be saved? Somehow the answer has to be somehow we left our state of spiritual deadness and we became alive spiritually so that we could accept Christ in the faith that we have. And Paul says that the power that accomplished that outcome was not our own. Just as the Father raised Christ from the grave, we likewise had to be raised, spiritually speaking. We had to be made alive again so that we could come to faith. Paul explains that in the next part. This is the part that we've been building toward. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So here's Paul now explaining how we made that trip from death to life. This is how we came to having faith in the gospel, even though we began life spiritually dead. Because, friends, we did not possess the power to respond to spiritual truth. Paul already said that earlier. And that means, as you see here in verse 4, it had to begin somewhere outside us. And how did it begin? But God. Right? Paul says, God acted. And as he did... Paul says, He made us alive together with Christ. This phrase, made us alive together with, that phrase in English is actually just one word in Greek. One word. And that one word only occurs one other place in the whole Greek New Testament. Another letter written by Paul to the church in Colossae, the letter we call Colossians. Let me just read you the phrase that Paul says in that letter where he uses the same Greek word of being made alive together. Listen to this, Colossians 2.13. And I want you to notice how similar it is. He starts in Colossians 2.13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He, meaning God, made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us of all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. 
Now, in both these passages I just quoted from, both in Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2, Paul emphasizes the same thing, that our coming to life spiritually in Christ, we would say our being saved was something God made happen. We did nothing to prompt God to take this step. We didn't ask for it. We certainly didn't initiate it or earn it. God did it. And in fact, the Father planned it long ago. Paul says in Colossians that he was at work when Christ was hanging on a cross, which was obviously about 2,000 years ago now. He was at work even in that past day, putting our sins on Christ, even as he hung on the cross. That demonstrates that the Lord was already preparing for your salvation long before you were even born. He knew who he was dying for, is the point, on that cross. And then furthermore, Paul adds back in Ephesians 2, and also in Colossians 2, that notice he says we were made alive while we were dead. Now that's very important because it's emphasizing that the state we were in when the process began was a state which we already know leaves us incapable of doing anything for our own sake. That's when the thing started. Not after we found a way to come to life on our own, but before that moment. We were like a corpse. And I'm going to keep using that analogy because I think that's actually Paul's intention. When he uses the word dead in the Greek, it's the word for a corpse. And so I think he wants us to sort of imagine ourselves. Now, physically, we were all alive. I get it. That's not what he's getting at, obviously. He's talking about the spiritual nature, your programming. And you were dead in a programming sense. You were unable to receive the things of God, like a corpse. And in that sense, like a dead man, we had zero potential to respond to the gospel. That's why God had to make us alive without our involvement because we were unable to respond otherwise. I want you to think back to the story of Lazarus in John's gospel. Remember the story of Lazarus? This is a friend of a friend of Jesus, a man he knew from the days he was walking the earth and he was the brother of Mary and Martha. You remember this, I hope. And the Lord intentionally let Lazarus die and stay dead for three days So that as the Lord then visited him and his family, he could raise him from the dead and prove his power over death. That's the broad strokes of the story. But in that story, in the instant before Jesus called Lazarus to rise and to come out from the tomb, what was the condition Lazarus was in? He was a dead, stinking corpse, according to the text. He had been there three days. And you'll remember, Jesus does not ask Lazarus, do you want to be raised? There's no invitation, right? And then let's assume for a moment that even if Jesus had said, Hey, Lazarus, do you want to be raised? It wouldn't have mattered because Lazarus could not have responded. He was incapable of responding because he was dead. Right? It would have had no impact. Dead things know nothing. Dead things hear nothing. Dead things agree to nothing. The only way Lazarus was walking out of that tomb was if God made him alive and then... After he had been made alive outside the view of whoever was waiting for him, only then could he respond to Jesus' order to come forth. Now those things probably happened in very close proximity. I mean, we all understand that it was in the same moment that God was doing everything. But there's still an order to it. There's still a reason it has to happen a certain way. And Jesus' words are life. He called Lazarus back to life, and then in that call he issued forth the order, come out. And so it was for us spiritually. According to the Bible, when the time came for your salvation moment, whenever that was in your past, in an instant, the Lord made you alive by His Spirit. By His Holy Spirit, you were born again 
The Bible says in John chapter 3, Then, and this is speaking of your spiritual nature again, and then once you had been made alive in Christ, you could then respond to the call of the gospel to believe and to profess Christ. And they may have happened almost instantaneously, or, as is the case in my background, I can distinctly remember that there was a moment I came to understand and believe in the gospel, and then there was a later moment in which I confessed Christ, and then there was an even later moment when I finally agreed to be baptized. And that whole process sort of took about a year or so. And in the middle of it, I'm trying to figure it all out. As humans have to do. You know, God's made a change in our, our spirit. Now our brain is trying to catch up to it. Notice Paul adds at the end of verse 5 that this is the technical definition of grace. The biblical definition of grace is God making us alive while we were yet dead and unable to do anything to help ourselves. That's the definition of grace. Grace is not merely an offer. Grace is not an invitation. Grace is something done for us by God. Because, friends, dead people do not accept invitations. The many times you may have heard the gospel before the day you actually believed in it are proof to you that while you're dead, you couldn't respond. Because the argument never changed, by the way. It's not like anybody came out with a better explanation. It's not like the message of the gospel got more compelling over time. It's the same message it's always been. Why on one day did you not accept it, but yet on another day it was perfectly sensible? The only difference between those two days is not the message, it's you. And it's what God did to bring you to a point where you could accept spiritual truth. Grace is God acting to save us. And more than just saving us, Paul goes on, he says, The Father made us to share in everything that he has granted to Christ. In verse 6, he says, In the past tense, we were raised to sit with Christ. Now, obviously, you and I have not traveled into the heavenly realm. If you think you have, please see me after church. We know that he's not speaking physically then. He's speaking spiritually. He's saying we have been granted a spiritual version of what Christ himself has received already at his ascension. The Bible uses the term sitting down in this way to imply finishing from work. When a man of privilege, a master, or anyone who is, who is assigned some authority, when they sit, they have made a conclusion that they're done with their work. That's what sitting meant. Servants didn't sit as long as they still had work to do. What Christ did when he sat down is all the work he had to do to redeem humanity from sin was finished on the cross. He could now sit. He was done. And spiritually, Paul is saying, you and I have been seated with him in the same sense. That is, we have seen all the work for our salvation done as we come into Christ. There's no more work you have to do. You didn't work to get your salvation, and you do not have to work to hold on to it. So we are seated in the sense that we're finished seeking for salvation. And that also means we're going to share in his inheritance. Paul says, in the ages to come... There's going to be a constant refrain from God's children praising the Lord for his kindness toward us in his grace. I think what this really gets to, beyond just the inheritance of the kingdom, I think it speaks to our understanding as well. As we grow in our understanding, we're growing today. You'll probably grow some more after today, I hope. Certainly by the time we reach heaven and we're glorified, we'll come into a fuller understanding of these things. And with each of those steps forward, we will just be that much more inclined to praise Him for what grace really did, because it will continue to blow our little minds from year to year, from life to life, from age to age, about just what God did to bring us in. Perhaps you're surprised to learn that God made you alive so that you could receive the gospel. And if you are, and I suspect some of you are, because I know I was, perhaps it's because, once again, what you're reading and hearing does not agree with your experience. 
I mean, your personal experience in coming to Christ was the result of a decision. You remember it. You remember saying some words, praying a prayer, doing what someone told you to do, coming to the altar. Whatever the ritual was that someone asked of you, you remember that, right? Maybe your parents prayed with you as a child. Or the pastor in a church gave an invitation. And you certainly did not detect some moment of being born again. There were not angels circling around your head. You didn't light up like a Christmas light. There was no discernible moment that you can remember being born again right before you gave your profession. You didn't perceive the Spirit's arrival in your heart as you came to faith. I mean, this is the normative experience of all believers. We simply heard the gospel, or we read the gospel, or someone explained it to us. It seems sensible, so we agreed with it, right? I mean, in more or less, you know, there's a million ways that happens, but my point is, more or less, that's what we all remember if we've come to faith. That was our experience. But friends, it turns out that your experience was not the whole story. That's why I said earlier, you have to have the Word of God if you're going to understand spiritual truths, because they cannot be understood merely through human experience. It doesn't work that way. Your experience to coming to faith just does not prepare you to understand how it actually happened. The Bible says that we heard the gospel because the Father opened our ears. The Bible says that we agreed to the gospel because the Spirit gave us the ability to accept spiritual truth. And the Bible says we confess Christ because God gave us a new nature, a programming that was willing to accept the things of God. That's what the Bible says. So, friends, that's telling us that that personal salvation moment that we all remember so well, friends, that was just the last step in a long chain of events that God was already doing and initiated for your sake and for mine. So if your understanding of how salvation happens is solely dependent on your experience on the last step, then you're missing most of the story. Because you haven't been exposed, perhaps, to what the Bible has been saying about that moment. That's why we have it. That's why God gave it to us. He didn't want us to be ignorant about these things. So that begs another question. Why would the Father do all these things for us? Paul says in verse 4, well, because he's rich in mercy. The word rich, we all think we know what it means, and I guess we kind of know it when we see it, right? It's always someone who has more money than us. But the word technically means an excess of something. For example, your, your rich uncle, that guy has an excess of money compared to what you would need, for example. Or better example might be a dessert. We say a dessert is rich because it has an excess of sweetness. It means having plenty to share, plenty to give out. And that's what Paul means when he says the Lord showed us an excess of mercy. In other words, friends, he gave us more mercy than we had any right to expect or certainly more than we deserved. We had every reason to remain dead, frankly. We had every reason to rightly remain under condemnation for our transgressions. Adam put us in that state. The Lord didn't put us there. It's not his fault. He had no obligation to correct the situation. Don't ever get thinking that God is not fair or good or right if he doesn't make available an opportunity to everyone or however many. He's under no obligation to give it to anyone. We put ourselves through Adam in a state that now God in mercy is willing to rectify And Paul said he did this purely because of his great love for us. He didn't extend us mercy because of something we said. He didn't do it as a quid pro quo. You know, you say a few things, you do a few things. Okay, then I'll love you and give you grace. No, friends. It wasn't because we did anything. As we learned earlier, we didn't have anything good to offer him. When you're in your dead state, you can't do anything to please God. The truth, friends, is that you were spiritually dead. You were unable to please God. You deserved nothing, but you stand here today saved because God, being rich in mercy, loved you. That's it. Remember I said we're walking the same path as Christ walked in the sense of what Christ did on our behalf. He shared in death because we were already dead. 
And then the Father made Him alive so that we could see Him blaze a path for us to be resurrected in a future day. And so in the same way, we're going to move from life to death. But in both cases, it's the Father. The Father is the one who raised Christ. The Father is the one who raised us. We were in Christ, Paul says, spiritually at the moment that the Father raised Him. Now, because you've been raised in Christ, because you have this new programming, we talked earlier about how in your old state, your old programming set you on a certain path, right? But let's turn that coin over for a second. Because as a believer, we just said, you've been raised into newness of life. You've been given a new spirit, a new programming. What that means, friends, is you and I now have the potential to live a life exactly like Christ. You have a spirit in you that is no longer a spirit that agrees with sin. A believer's spirit agrees with the law of God. We possess a new nature. And this living spirit is programmed by God to hear the spirit, to hear his instructions through the word or in other ways, and to obey it. The problem, of course, is we still have a flesh that is programmed in the old nature. And so we have a war now going on within our lives. We have the body wanting to do one thing and the spirit wanting to do another thing. And so it's always been a, a fight and always will be until we get a new body. But if you've walked with Christ for any significant length of time, then I would expect you've probably noticed how your new spirit has begun to produce positive changes in your life. Maybe if you can remember the days before you were a believer. Do you notice that you think differently now? And you act a little differently? Do you notice you feel differently about sinning when it comes into your life again? You still do it, of course. We all still do it. But you desire it less. It doesn't feel as rewarding as it once did. And when you do succumb to sin, don't you feel the conviction over it, the desire to do better next time? Moreover, did you gain a new desire for God's Word? Did you start finding reason to want to know Him better, to hear Him better? Did those things actually mean something to you now instead of it just being religious mumbo-jumbo like it used to be? Weren't you drawn into a life with God's people? Doesn't being here with God's people hold attraction to you? Have you become aware of your bright, eternal future and the kingdom to come? Does that get you a little excited? Does it change your thinking about how you live now? Can you see these things? Because if so, friends, then you are seeing through these examples how you are now spiritually different than you were. How you were a a dead person spiritually, now you're alive. Things that meant nothing to you mean something to you now. But I should also say because it may be true for some, that maybe some of these things, maybe, maybe none of these things, have come to pass for you in your life. Or they hold little interest for you. That's not unexpected, necessarily, because Christians move down this path of sanctification to varying degrees, and they do so at their own pace. Some will move farther, some will move faster, we know that. But if you're not moving at all, In other words, if you can't really detect a difference, and I don't mean just coming to church on Sundays, by the way, that's not a measure of much, frankly. But apart from that kind of mechanical thing, if you can't detect any of these other things in your life, then friends, take a second look at how you're walking with Christ. Because sanctification is always a matter of obeying the Spirit while crucifying the flesh. As Jesus said, you've got to take up your cross, so to speak, And that means you've got to put aside, crucify, Paul says, the desires of your flesh while simultaneously strengthening that new programming inside you that wants to draw you into the better things so that you can move forward. And you strengthen it through spiritual disciplines of one form or another. And then I should add one more thing. In some rare cases, a person's complete lack of interest in spiritual truths might, might mean that he or she has yet to be born again, actually. Truly born again. 
And in such cases, that person would be the kind of person who claims to be a Christian, but they have never truly been born again. They really don't even know what it means to be a Christian. They're attending church. They're hanging around in a group of people who call themselves Christian. But for them, the meaning of it never goes any deeper than that. But I do want to caution us against jumping to the conclusion, in the case of someone we know who has a very shallow walk with the Lord, that that somehow means automatically that we should count them out as a believer. I think that's a dangerous way to approach people's lives because behaviors and attitudes are messy things. I'm fond of saying, if you catch me at the wrong moment on the wrong day, if you walked into my house at the, at the wrong moment, I wouldn't necessarily look very much like a believer. You might find me saying something unkind to my wife. You might find me being lazy or unproductive in some other area of my life. You might just think of me as no different than the average person in the world and wonder just who is this Steve guy after all. Hopefully those moments are rare. Hopefully they're getting rarer. All I'm saying is everyone's behavior is an imperfect guide to assessing their heart. I just want to acknowledge the fact that it's at least a possibility in the case of of someone here or there. I want to end today with Paul's own summary. Two verses I've quoted more than any other verses in the Bible. Ephesians 2 and 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is his summary of his argument. And it is one of the most powerful statements in all Scripture and in all of Paul's letters. I've memorized this verse. It's obviously not very hard. I'm not trying to get any praise for that. It's very simple. But I'm saying I've memorized it because, friends, you can't imagine how often this passage comes to bear on arguments or discussions with people about salvation. And to understand these verses properly, we've got to take them apart grammatically. Right? First, Paul says we were saved by grace. By grace. The preposition there. Sometimes you may hear someone say that Christians are saved by faith. But, friends, technically... That's not accurate. You're not saved by faith, according to the Scriptures. You're saved by grace. And the difference is important because, friends, it completely changes the location of the action. Think about that for a minute. If you say that you're saved by faith, then the location of the action is inside you. Do you hear that? The believer, then, is the one who has faith. God doesn't have faith. We have faith, right? So if we say faith produces our salvation, then we are, in a sense, saying... We saved ourselves. That is to say that at the moment we took the step of believing, we brought our salvation to ourselves. That's what it would mean if you were saved by faith. Paul makes it clear. Salvation is by grace. And now where does grace come from? Where's the action coming from when we say by grace? It's not coming from us anymore, is it? It's coming from above. God gives grace to us, and by His grace He made us alive while we were dead. Grace, as you know, means unmerited favor. For no reason except his own love, he decided to bring us salvation. That's what Paul is saying. By his grace, he predestined us to salvation, Paul said in chapter 1, and by grace we were saved. But how does God show his children that he has bestowed his grace upon them? In other words, God in heaven makes a decision. I'm going to give grace to Steve. Bam, I'm going to make him alive. But how does he communicate that decision to me? And to those who know me, how do we know that I have, in fact, received his grace? Only when we come into his presence following our death would we even know that we had been saved if there hadn't been some way to manifest that decision. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's, it's possible, I guess. God could have, by his grace, saved us and left it at that and never communicated that decision into the life of humanity. And we would have just gone through life, and then at our death... Some of us end up in the good place, some of us don't, and it was completely unknown what was going to happen before that moment. 
Of course, that does not bring God glory here, nor does it serve His purpose to share the truth through those who come to know Him. So, Paul says, God manifests, makes known, He manifests His grace to us, notice the preposition, through faith. Through faith. Through our faith, God's grace becomes evident, both to us and to the world. We see it happening, right? We see someone coming to faith. When you see someone coming to faith, you are now seeing that God's grace has come upon that person because you can see the faith response, the belief response. Now, I am not saying faith is not required for salvation. Quite to the contrary. Paul just said it was. Faith is an essential requirement for salvation. But friends, what you're learning is faith is the result of God's grace. It's not the way we gain God's grace. Everybody hear what I said? Faith is the result of God's grace. It's not the way you obtain God's grace. And just to make sure we understand that that is in fact the correct view here, that the relationship between grace and faith works the way I just described, Paul then adds that what we possess is, notice, not of ourselves, not of yourselves. Now, there are several ways people have tried to take this phrase, it, not of yourselves. The question always becomes, what is it referring to? Grammatically, it has to refer to something in that prior phrase at the beginning of that verse. But there's choices in that phrase that could potentially be the nouns that you're talking about with it. First, grace. Second, faith. You see them in that order in the text? Normally, in grammar, you'd always take the pronoun back to the most recent noun, the most recent antecedent. And that would mean that faith is the gift. But some commentators, and I believe they're correct in this, have noted that the pronoun it in Greek is in the neuter voice, while the words grace and faith are feminine. And if it was to refer to either of those two words, the it would have been in the feminine voice also in keeping with Greek grammar. So it can't be faith, it can't be grace under those terms. So what they then conclude is that it must refer to salvation. It is not a reference to any of those words individually. It is a reference to everything before it. It is a reference to the whole process. By grace, your salvation came through faith. It, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Calvin made the same observation, so have other more recent commentators. That means that not only is grace not of yourself, well, that's self-evident, right? By definition, grace is not of us. And therefore, your salvation is not of yourselves. Well, we understand that. But then, friends, by the same token, your faith itself is not of yourselves. All of that was given to you by God. Grace you received from God. Salvation being the outcome of His grace. And your faith being the way He manifested that you had received grace. All of those are not of yourselves. Because God did everything with respect to your salvation. That's why in verse 9, Paul ends by saying, It is not a result of works. Works, friends, refers to anything a human being can do. Anything. For example, physical acts, right? That's an obvious example of a work. Paul says there was no physical act in your life that contributed to your salvation. But what that also means, friends, is walking down an aisle. That didn't do it. It means kneeling. It means praying. Those physical acts were not the reason God gave you grace. Works then also refers to anything you can say. The speech of a person is a work. You profess Christ when you were saved, but speaking those words didn't save you. Neither did reciting a confession of faith. If we hold that those things do save you, that confession itself is the way you're saved, if you hold that that's actually the mechanism of salvation, the confession, then you are saying a human work is at least partly responsible for bringing salvation to you. Paul says that's not true. And works, by the way, also refers to thoughts 
and even emotions. Do you know that thoughts and emotions are works? Do you remember when Jesus said that anger is equivalent to murder and that lust is equivalent to adultery in the New Testament? Jesus' statements regarding those things establish a principle. And the principle is that what we do in our thoughts is just as real as what we do with our bodies. And therefore, friends, your thoughts or feelings are works in a sense that they still are examples of you doing something. And Paul says those things didn't make you saved either. Paul says that our salvation came apart from any human involvement whatsoever. Even the things we did do, like believing, like confessing, those things were the product of God's grace already at work in our hearts by the Spirit who made us alive. It was God who produced the faith in you that caused you to want to confess. That was so that when all is said and done, God's children in His presence won't have any opportunity to boast, Paul adds. We have to give the Lord credit for everything that happened. I mean, even down to the moment that the thought popped in our head and we said yes to Christ, that was God. Paul's teaching unequivocally refutes every false teaching proposing that works are a way to heaven. All of them. Catholicism. Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, all Eastern pagan philosophies, they all teach to varying degrees that some kind of human achievement is required to get yourself into heaven. And Paul said unequivocally, it is not so. For if that were so, then there would be some in heaven on that future day saying, well, I was smart enough, I was good enough, I was crafty enough to figure out how to do these things to get me where I am we would be able to say we played a part. The Lord's not going to have any boasting. Because, friends, when it gets right down to it, what can dead people boast about? Can dead people boast about coming to life? Could Lazarus have boasted about raising himself from the dead? Do you think he could have walked out of that tomb, taken all those, those rolls of linen off of his body, and then to that amazed crowd that had gathered there with Jesus, what if he had said, you know, I heard the Lord's voice, so I decided to sit up and to walk out? I decided, I agreed, I accepted his invitation. What do you think the crowd would have said? If he had dared say that, don't you think they would have responded, Okay, Lazarus, but who caused you to come to life so that you could even hear Jesus' call? The only answer to that question would be, God made you alive, Lazarus, so that you could respond. And the same is true for you and I, friends. That's what Ephesians 2 is teaching us. You can say you were saved because you responded to the call of the gospel and because you believed. The Bible says that's true as well. But the Bible goes on to ask, yes, friends, but who caused you to come to life so that you could hear the call of the gospel and then obey it? That's the question that we just learned an answer to today, friends. God gets all the glory. Let's go to prayer. Father, thank you more than anything else on this weekend of thanks for your grace that you delivered to the saints once and for all through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice on the cross. Faith, Father, is the instrument that demonstrates your love for us. And with that, Father, we can have the opportunity to carry that same message of love by our faith to the lives of others who you, likewise, may make alive by your will. What a powerful thing, Father, that you have invested in your church the words of life and that you would deem to carry them forth into the world by the likes of us when you don't need us. What a blessing it is, Father. I pray, Father, we'd never take that for granted. We would not treat it lightly. We wouldn't set a mission aside that is so powerful and so meaningful just to go about our everyday lives here in a passing way. Thank you, Lord, for this church. 
for a study of this kind that today is so challenging in light of what's often taught. And I pray, Father, you would show us the truth of what's in this text. If my words did not agree, Father, with your heart or your will, then I know, Father, you will remove them from the hearts and minds of those who've heard and you will ensure that something better would come. That is my wish, Father. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.